four weeks on the fear of God. And this is the fourth week. The first week, we looked at the fear of God. What is it? The second week, we looked at the fear of God. Why is it so important? And these last two weeks, were, or this last week and this week, we're looking at the fear of God. How do we grow in it? And so for that, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open to Jeremiah chapter 5. In my preparation, I've decided to add one extra verse to our reading, so we're uh, increasing it by 25%. We'll be reading verses 21 through 24. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack that looks like this, you can find that on page 633. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone astray. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear Yahweh our God who gives the rain in its season and the autumn rain and the spring rain and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. You can be seated as we pray. Father, it is our collective prayer that you use a sermon in our hearts and minds to renew us, to challenge us, help us to think like you and to understand you better, especially as we think about how to grow in the fear of God. Help us. We can't do this just by our own strength. We need your spirit to be working. So our prayer is that in this time around your word, it would be a mutual time where your spirit is working in our hearts as we all think and engage with these verses. In Christ's name, amen. Over the course of 40 years in ministry, the prophet Jeremiah called a hard-hearted people to repentance. That was basically his message. And the Bible doesn't really tell us of any fruit that he saw. He called for repentance for 40 years, and as best as we can tell, none came. And the problem as you read through the book of Jeremiah and and other passages that describe what was going on in those days is that the people thought that they were fine with God. So they went about their comfortable little lives, happy with what they had. They'd cherry-pick a few Bible verses to prove to themselves that God was on their side. And then they would choose for themselves preachers or prophets who'd come and camp out on those same happy verses that they liked. Peace, peace. But they had no fear of God. And you could tell because any sort of examination of their lives against God's 
holy standard, they would realize how short they fell. They lived lives marked by idolatry, marked by injustice, marked by greed. But it seemed as though they didn't care. They didn't think God minded. After all, their lives were pretty fine, nothing too terrible. So what would you expect God to say to those people? Well, he had a lot of things to say. The book of Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. But in chapter 5, he specifically addresses the, the, the issue that they had no fear of him. In light of that, what would you expect God to say to them? What is it that they should have noticed that would have helped them have a right fear of God? What was it that they'd missed? I think you might find it surprising what he has to say, and so let's have a look. If you closed your Bibles, open them back up to Jeremiah chapter 5. It's just four verses we're looking at, but they undergird what we'll be saying in this sermon. The first half of the sermon, we're going to be camping out in Jeremiah 5 and looking at what it has to say. The second half, we're going to be taking the underpinnings that that's given us and really thinking through how to grow in the fear of God. So, we want to camp out here in the first half of the sermon. If you notice, in verses 21 and 22, God talks to his people through Jeremiah. But then in verses 23 to 24, God talks to Jeremiah about his, be- about his people. You see that change? Addressing them, but then addressing Jeremiah about them. But he basically says the same thing both times. So you'll see a parallel, verses 21 and 23, and verses 22 and 24 parallel one another. So in verses 21 and 23, basically he tells them they have a heart problem. So look at verse 21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people. That word senseless in the Hebrew says people with no heart. But heartless doesn't quite mean the same thing as people with no heart. So they went with senseless. But hear this, O foolish and heartless people, or people with no heart who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. And then verse 23, but this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone astray. Now, when we think of heart, we think of heart primarily as the place we feel emotions. And that would be captured by the the Hebrew word for heart, but this word had so much more to it. It captured your mind and your will and your soul. So when he's saying they have no heart, he's not saying they lack compassion. He's saying that there's something core to who they are at their will, at their soul. They're soulless people. They're senseless people. There's a numbness to who they are. And then he says their hearts are actually rebellious and stubborn. So it makes sense then that if this dullness of heart, if this lack of this thing that is both feeling and willing and thinking and intuitive, intuitively leading, if the lack of that, that he would say you have no eye, or you have eyes but see not, ears but hear not. They're senseless. They can't see the most obvious things. They can't hear what it is they need to hear. They're numbed. They're cake-walking through life 
in a quasi-conscious stupor. Verse 23 makes clear that a numbed, senseless heart is a stubborn, rebellious heart. Hear that? As the heart dulls, it becomes more rebellious. So what do you think the devil wants to do? The devil wants to put our hearts under local anesthesia. Because he knows if they are, then we're less likely to be oriented towards God. Nowadays, if that's the case, the devil has his job pretty easy. Like God's people in Jeremiah's day, we live a pretty comfortable life, don't we? We have shelter. We have food. We have relative political stability. So the cradle just kind of rocks us. The lullaby lulls. And Lincoln and Blinken and Nod are soon fast asleep. Unaware of God or our need for Him. But this comfort and ease aren't the devil's only tools for numbing us. He also uses distraction. If he can keep our brains from any real thought, any real reflection, he's got a better chance that we'll miss God. So what does he do? He pumps every moment of our life full with sports and shows and movies and Instagram and Facebook and blogs and texting and emails and Twitter. And soon, we've gone through an entire week and haven't really once stopped to think or reflect. So that verse 21, that's describing verse 21, this numbing effect, and it leads to verse 23. Yahweh tells the people they're senseless and numb, and Yahweh tells Jeremiah that the people are stubborn and rebellious. Do you see that connection? Now, the heart problem that we've seen is really a fear problem. Look at what he says at the, to the people at the start of verse 22. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble before me? And then look what he says of the people at the start of verse 24. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear Yahweh our God. So you see this heart problem is actually a fear problem. They do not fear Yahweh. And there's a connection between these two. A numb heart becoming a rebellious heart is a heart that doesn't fear. So you're seeing these two parallel statements, one to, one to the people and one to Jeremiah. And as we've been looking up to this point, it brings us back to the question we started with. What is God going to tell a people who don't fear him. What is it that they've missed? What is it that they're too numb to have seen and heard? I mean, we probably think if God wants them to fear him, he's going he's gonna to say, think about Sodom and Gomorrah, what I did to them. Maybe some of the stories we looked at last week. Think about Nadab and Abihu. Remember those stories? 
Maybe he'd say to southern Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel, think back a century ago to the northern kingdom who rebelled against me and the terrible judgment I brought against them. I mean, didn't we learn last week, if we want to grow in the fear of God, we need to consider His power in judgment. Surely that's where He'll go with this people, who of all people need to be shocked out of their complacency. But that's not where He goes. Look at the rest of verse 22. I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea. A perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they can't prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. He takes them to the chaotic, unpredictable sea that has regularly wrecked their ships and claimed lives of those they love. He takes them to this sea with its massive swells and their deadly currents. This this sea that teems with massive or or terrible creatures that are lurking unseen just below the surface, ready to crush or devour. And he says, this sea has a line that it cannot cross. It doesn't matter how much it rains. The sea follows the rule that Yahweh has laid out for it. It's like you're playing a game of tag and you have a base. All these people try to tag you, trying to tag you, but I get on base and I'm okay. And when God created the world and he separated the waters from the land and he had this chaotic sea with all its power, he said, but there's a base. Land is going to be your base. And I'm going to draw a line. And as long as you're on this side of the line, you're okay. Venture out that way, you're on your own. You need Jesus in your boat then. But here, you're okay. We're actually safe here. You realize how much we take that for granted? Our eyes don't even see that. Our ears won't even hear it. Our soul fails to grasp the wonder. Because we're heartless, senseless, soulless people who can't even wonder that the sea stays in its place. That's what verse 22 is teaching us. And then look at verse 24. Who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. See, the same God who made land as a safe place and drew a line to keep the sea out also sends rain on that land. Rain. Have you stopped to think about what a strange thing it is? God's actually designed a massive irrigation system so that our land can stay fertile. Thinking about it really should blow our minds. You think about it, the rain falls and it goes down into the ground and it provides all that the land needs to be able to become this this fertile land that can produce crop and grow and yet some of it trickles through and makes its way to a creek which makes its way to a river which eventually makes its way to a lake or eventually a sea, an ocean. And yet somehow that same water ends up back in the sky. 
and it's brought back right where it's needed, and it falls down again to do the same thing all over. It's amazing. That's what verse 24 is telling us. So how does God address their lack of fear? He points them to see the sea and its boundaries. And then he points them to see the rain and the harvest. He points them to nature. Not to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Why does he point them to these things? Why does he go to nature when assessing their lack of proper fear? Now, it could be taken as a gentle rebuke. Israel, the unruly sea follows my command, and yet you consistently don't follow my command. And if you're reading a little further, you see that verse 25 points out, sometimes the rain is withheld. Rain isn't just a mercy. When it's withheld, it's a judgment. So I think there is a bit of that in play here. When we slow down and consider God's creation, creation itself sometimes can offer a rebuke to us. But I don't think that this, these examples from nature are a rebuke at their core simply because how they're worded. Look especially at verse 24. You see what he does? He's putting in their mouths words that they should have said. In other words, this is the kind of speaking they should have had. They should be saying, let's fear Yahweh who provides for us and takes care of us through the rain. So I want us to see this then. As people don't fear God, he takes them to nature and he particularly has taken them to nature to show his mercy towards them. I created base for you. I created an irrigation system for you. He's saying, if they'd grasp my mercies to them, they would fear me. If they could grasp how I use my power for their good, they would fear me. I don't think that's how most of us intuitively think about the fear of God. And I told you we need to stay, pay, pay careful attention to Jeremiah 5 because what we'll see here undergirds the rest of what we'll be saying in the sermon. And so this is really key. This is what we're trying to see that undergirds it. God tells us that if his people grasped his mercies for them, they would fear him. And it's so important, I want you to see that it's not just here in Jeremiah 5. In fact, this is such an important theme in all of Scripture that that's why I wanted the last sermon to be on this, considering his great mercies. So I just want to show a few other places this is shown in the Bible. So in Jeremiah, a little bit later, turn ahead to, page, to Jeremiah 33. It's on page 662. Now, by this point, Jeremiah is actually saying, though God's going to bring judgment and judge Jerusalem and judge all of you, there is going to come a time when because of his great mercy, he's going to restore Jerusalem. So listen to what he says in Jeremiah 33, starting at verse 7. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them of all the guilt of their sin against me 
and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good I do for them. So he's going to do all this good for Jerusalem, and he's going to do all this good for Judah, and everyone's going to hear about the goodness of God, and what will be the response? They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Do you see that? His mercies lead the nations to fear him. Or look at Psalm 130. It's a little further back in your Bible. It's on page 518 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 130 on page 518, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Do you see that? Why is he ultimately going to send Jesus to pay for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we who have iniquity can actually stand before God forgiven? It's so that he may be feared. His mercies are designed to lead us to him in fear. So God God shows his mercy so that we'll fear him. He does it in nature. He does it in salvation. He does it in forgiving our sins. Now, if you were to look up the fear of God in the Bible and just do a study of all the times the fear of God's mentioned, which I did in anticipation of this series, one of the things you'll find is oftentimes when fear is mentioned, there is this connection between God's mercy and his fear, the fear of him. But typically, the relationship's a little different. What we've been reading is is he shows us his mercy so that we'll fear. What it typically is, those who fear me will experience my mercies. But regardless, the connection between fear and mercy is rampant throughout the scriptures. You see, mercy is both the cause and the effect of fearing God. So if last week we learned that we grow in the fear of God by considering His powerful judgments, this week we're learning that we grow in the fear of God by considering His powerful mercies. As I mentioned last week, you can't separate these two realities out. It's not like, well, I like the God I fear because of His mercies. Oh, but I don't like the God who I fear because of His judgments. Or, man, people just need to see God as powerful no consider you, you can't separate them out it's like having a cookie and trying to separate out the flour from the butter you, you just it doesn't work and, and if somehow you were able to manage to extract one of those what you'd be left with wouldn't be a cookie 
And if you were to extract the fear of God because of his judgments, the fear of God because of his mercies, what would be left with is not the kind of fear of God the Bible is talking about. Whatever it is, it's not what the Bible means when it says the fear of God, if you remove either of those elements. So we are to grow in the fear of God, not only by considering his judgments, but as we're seeing this week, by considering his mercies. So I said the first half of the sermon, we'd be looking at Jeremiah 5 and see God's logic. And his logic is, if they could have grasped my mercies, they would have feared me. And we saw that that's true, not just in Jeremiah 5, but in the rest of the scriptures. So that is going to be the truth that undergoods the second half of the sermon. And with the second half of the sermon, I want to explore how this logic can actually help us grow in the fear of God. So, We've all seen, this is something I need more of in my life. How can I grow in it? How does that logic help us grow? So I have two concluding points, and by concluding I just mean they're the last two things I'm saying in the sermon. The first, if you want to fear God, don't let your heart grow numb. If you want to fear God, or if you want to grow in your fear of God, don't let your heart grow numb. And secondly, if you want to fear God, entrust yourself to Him. If you want to fear God, entrust yourself to Him. I'm gonna, the first point will be more brief. The second one I'll, I'll take some time to develop because I think it's pretty important. So first, if you want to fear God, don't let your heart grow numb. One of the best ways to actually grow in the fear of God is to actually see and hear His creation. Think about God taking Abraham out on the night sky and showing him all the stars and telling him, think about that as you think about my promises. Or you think about Job God taking Job to consider the great beasts of the sea, like Leviathan. Saying, consider that. Or you think of Solomon teaching his son to kneel down and look at a colony of ants. But you know what? A numb heart is going to be too busy or too comfortable, or too distracted to see these things. So if we want to be able to really consider God's mercies as displayed in His creation, we might have to leave our phones at home when we go for a walk. We might have to turn the radio off when we go for a drive. We might have to leave the computer off when we get home from work. So you might have to get rid of some of those distractions or at least minimize them. We've got to be careful with our busyness. We need to have times of real Sabbath rest. We might have to figure out ways to 
slow down our ridiculous, relentless pace. But if we're going to see and consider, really weigh God's mercy shown to us in creation, we can't allow our hearts to grow numb. We can't stop hearing and seeing. So let me be a bit in your face. If we're glued to our phones, addicted to our devices, filling every crack of our schedule with activity and never resting, we are very unlikely to be growing in the fear of God. Stop letting the devil apply his local anesthetic to our hearts. We need to slow down and see what's actually there to reflect upon it. And as a result, see God's power displayed through His creation. If you want to fear God, don't let your heart grow numb. That was the first concluding point. The second one's the long one. If you want to fear God, entrust yourself to Him. Or if you want to be growing in your fear of God, entrust yourself to Him increasingly. I mentioned I'd be longer on this because I think um, I'm trying to bring together a lot of the Bible's teaching into one point, which I've summarized as entrust yourself to God, but there's a lot of dynamics. If you think about the, the nature of a good relationship, what makes a good relationship? I think, I think there are two ingredients. I mean, you could say a third. The other person has to be decent and good, but we'll just assume that. Two ingredients that you can contribute to really enjoying the fullness of a relationship. The first ingredient is that you need to be in right relationship with them. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But you need to be in right relationship with that. The second ingredient is time. So being in right relationship and time allow you to really experience the full benefit of a good relationship. So let me say what I, describe what I mean by being in right relationship. We don't relate to different people and things the same way. Any man who's tried to relate to his wife like he did to his mom has found that out. It doesn't work. And you don't relate to your son the same way you would to your boss. And you don't relate to your neighbor, Freddie, like you would to your pet cat, Fluffy. If you want to experience the fullness of a right relationship with Freddie, you have to understand how you're supposed to relate to a neighbor. And if you want to experience the fullness of a very different kind of relationship with Fluffy, you have to understand how one is supposed to relate to a cat, which I don't understand. <laughs> but I do know this. If I treat Freddie like Fluffy, things will go south. So do you see what I mean? Depending on the nature of a relationship, we relate differently to it. And we have to understand the right way of relating to something in order to have a good relationship with it. And unless you grasp what that right way is of relating, you won't experience all that that relationship could be. Some of us who are parenting are dealing with this, right? We're trying to teach our kids that you relate to an adult or one in authority differently than you relate to a peer, and they can't even get their mind around that. Why does that person get to tell me what to do? Usually you're that person. 
So there is a right way in the Bible of relating to God. And it's a fairly all-encompassing idea, but, but the best summary in the Bible of the right way of relating to God is the phrase, the fear of God. That is our right orientation to God. The fear of God. Now, we've seen through this series that involves a lot of different aspects, right? We've talked about how it means really grasping His bigness and our smallness as it relates to His authority over us, as it relates to how much more power, how much stronger He is than us. It relates to His sacrificial love for us and grasping that. And it relates to seeing His great wisdom. In all four of those areas, we need to see how big he is, how small he is. We need to have the fear of God in all four of those areas. Not as four distinct things, but kind of as, a, as a one whole entity that has those four different aspects. That's what the fear of God is. So that's what we need to grasp in order to right, relate to him. The right way of being connected to God is to have the fear of him, according to the Bible. So that's the first ingredient. Right relationship. And with God, that means fear. And all the different nuance that we've talked about in this series. The second ingredient we need to fully appreciate a relationship is time. Maybe some of you remember the first time your child was born. First time. Your child was only born once. (laughs) When your child was first born. And you heard their cry. And as soon as you heard their cry, there was something in your heart that said, I need to do something to help that helpless baby that's mine. You're immediately oriented the right way in that relationship. I'm here to sacrifice for their good so they can survive and thrive. But over time, you do that more and more. And in very different ways. Sometimes plucking your eyes open so you can stay awake because of what happened last night. Sometimes tearing your hair out because of what they're doing as older kids. But sacrificing and giving yourself to them. And as you do that in a right way, then at some point, when you put your daughter on your arm and walk her down the aisle, the richness of what's happening there is so powerful because of the time put in of loving in that right way. Or when you see your son become a dad and you think back on those nights when you were talking with him late into the night and thinking, where is this going? You sacrificed so much over time. And now it has all this richness. Time is critical. Now, of course, time is of no benefit if we aren't in a right relationship. If you treat your boss like a son, time will make it worse, not better. But time is critical for strengthening and deepening our relationships. So time is the second ingredient. So I have those two ingredients, and I just want to make a comment about how mercy fits in with both ingredients. 
Remember how I said mercy is both the cause of our fear of God and the effect of our fear of God in the Bible? That mercy leads us to fear God, but those who fear God get to experience His mercy. I want to take those two different aspects of mercy and and apply them to these two ingredients. And this is where things get a little bit complex, but I'm trying to distill it for us in a way that's accessible. It is His mercies that draw us into a right relationship with Him. So His mercies are out here and we see them and we're drawn into right relationship with them. Which that right relationship is fearing Him. But as we fear Him over time, we experience more and more of those mercies. And as we experience those mercies lived out in time, as we fear Him, it causes us to fear Him more. And so there's this cycle. We, we see His mercies, we fear Him. As we fear Him, we experience His mercies. And that makes us fear Him more. And the cycle continues. So that what's, what's there gains that momentum and get, builds in that full way that God's intended. I think about it um, like, like marriage. So when I first met Karen and started to get to know her, I was attracted to her because of her tested and textured faith. Because of her ability to connect in a genuine way with pretty much anyone because she had a certain uh, disarming fieriness or candor with kindness. I could list a lot of other things besides her being very good looking. But my encounter with those traits led me to want to enter into a specific kind of relationship with her, a marital covenant relationship. And now, as we've been married for over a decade, in that right kind of relationship over time, with all the highs and lows that come with that, each of those traits I know with much greater nuance and fullness. I had a sense that I was marrying someone great when I married her, but I didn't grasp the half of what a great gift I was being given. That's how it is with God's mercies. So you could say with Karen, did did those traits about her lead me to make a covenant with her? Or are those traits the benefit of covenanting with her? Well, it's both, right? Both. That's how it is with God's mercies. They're designed to lead us into a right relationship with Him. They, They prompt us to fear the Lord. But as we enter into that right relationship we begin to fear the Lord and so we benefit all the more from His mercies. And they only grow over time. So I'm taking all these different things, these two ingredients and how mercy fits with them, and I'm saying basically what that means is if we want to grow in the fear of God, we need to be able to entrust ourselves to Him. So let me just put a little flesh on that to show you how that works in actual life. Okay? So... I get it, James. I've now heard the Fear of God sermon series. I know that what it means to fear God is to see how big God is and how small I am. All right. 
Then, as I see how big God is, how small I am, some overwhelming situation hits me in life. I don't know what to do with this. And part of me, or maybe my response to that is I want to run away. I want to pull my head under the covers. I want to disappear. Or maybe, depending on how I'm wired, in light of that hard situation, I want to put on my Superman cape. Rescue it and be strong and be the one who fixes this. But wait. The fear of God says, I need to see how big God is and how small I am. So instead of trying to look to myself, I start crying out to God. God, I don't know what to do here. I'm overwhelmed. This weight is too much for me to bear. I call out to him. And then I, then I open up the Bible and let him, let him direct me with his word. I let his word be a light to my feet. I look to his wisdom and understanding instead of trusting mine. Or so I'm looking to the Bible and saying, what are some principles? What are things you don't want me doing? What are things you do want me doing in this situation? What might your purposes be in this? And I'm looking to the Bible. I'm studying those things and pressing into those things I find in the Bible. And then, maybe a few days later, maybe a few months later, or maybe a few years later, as I look back, I see how God's ways were good and how in fearing him, seeing his bigness and my smallness, he actually protected me from going all sorts of bad directions that my own flesh wanted to take me. And that there was good fruit from the path he put me on. And I see what kind of God he is. And so then, I fear him all the more. And so then, I'm faced with a big decision. I don't know what to do here. Maybe you're the type of person when a big decision comes, you go, okay, I got this. I'm going to get my spreadsheet out. I'm going to list the positives and the negatives. I'm going I'm to figure this thing out. Or maybe you're somebody who's a little gun shy. You've made some bad decisions in your life, and now any sort of big decision just wants you, you want to just kind of hide in a corner. But you go, wait, wait, wait. Fear of God. He's taken care of me before when I look to him. He's a big God. I'm small. I don't need to be trusting myself, looking to myself. I can look to him. And so you begin to pray. And whenever this thing comes to your mind, this decision, you say, I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to look to God. And then you start opening up the Bible and saying, God's wise, I'm not. So let's look for some principles in the Bible that will help me guide this decision. Maybe I even talk to some other people who know the Bible well and say, what are some principles in the Bible, not just your own ideas, but in the Bible that are going to help me think through this decision? And you actually walk in the fear of God, praying to Him and looking to His wisdom. And then, sure enough, you see in hindsight how God carried you through that. Even, even when you're making the decision, you're thinking, God, okay, now I've done all this, i prayed, I've looked at the scriptures, I've got to make my decision, I'm going to make the best one I can, but God, I know I'm probably still making a mess of things. If you could just establish this, even though it's, even though it's feeble and frail and small, use this for good. And he does, and you see that, and you see how he takes care of you. And you see how by looking to him, you are protected from all sorts of things that you in your own wisdom would have done or in your own way of handling things would have gone. It would have gone and you're thankful. And so you grow in the fear of God. 
That's what I'm trying to say here. I think that's what the scriptures are trying to say when it talks about all these mercies as we fear him that both lead us to fear him and then are the response of fearing to him. It's saying entrust yourself to him. See how big he is and walk in those ways. I could go on and on, but that's the pattern that just continues throughout your life. And really, at its core, in the scriptures, the best way to grow in the fear of God is to do that. Walk with him, entrusting yourself to him. His mercies draw you in. And then the more you experience his mercies, the more you fear him. And that's why this second concluding point was, if you want to grow in the fear of God, entrust yourself to him. So we spent four weeks on the fear of God now. First week, we saw what it is, how big God is, how small we are. Next, we saw how important it is. Because without it, we are under God's wrath. But when we have it, we experience His protection. And then as we grow in it, the other fears that are vying to control our lives are relegated to the rightful place. And now these last two weeks, we've seen two ways to grow in it. Last week, by considering His powerful judgments. This week, by considering His powerful mercies. So we've been getting a lot of our thinking right about the fear of God. But I don't want this to be a series that simply gets our thinking straight on the fear of God. I want it to be a series that causes us to bow in humble adoration and proclaim, My God, how great Thou art. We're about to sing a song that allows us to do just that. And I'm just going to ask us to try to unnumb our hearts. To actually sing from our hearts, from our souls, from our wills. To actually consider what we're about to sing. And so that we can collectively, with one voice, in all earnestness, at the conclusion of a four-week series in the fear of God, together proclaim... How 